You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to go to Psalm chapter 23. As we come to a close in our series, we've entitled Sabbatical Reflections. And if you're just joining us for the first time or you need a refresher, uh, I went on a three-month sabbatical where I was completely removed from the church and in some ways felt like I was totally removed from society. And uh, I came back and basically what we've been doing in this series is sharing uh, kind of four words that sum up my sabbatical, what God did during that time and what we think it means for us as a church. And so in the first week, um, all the words, by the way, started with an S, and so you're welcome for that. Um, and the first week was sacred, which was the idea that we want to be a people who learn how to live aware of and connected to God and the everyday stuff of life. Uh, the second week was surrender. And the idea behind surrender is that when you choose to follow Jesus, uh, bad news, he is going to lead you into places oftentimes you don't want to go. But the good news is if you're willing to die to yourself, if you're willing to surrender, uh, you can experience life to the fullest. Uh, last week we talked about this word softer. Um, and the idea behind there is Romans 8, uh, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And we want to learn how to love ourselves, uh, honestly, the way Christ loves us. Uh, we want to learn to be patient with ourselves and kind with ourselves, uh, to treat ourselves the way God does. And so rather than always trying to try harder to be better, we actually want to try softer at times, and that actually leads to transformation. This week, as we come to a close, we're going to look at the word secure. And to do that, we're going to be in Psalm 23. I actually, when I was on sabbatical, my thought was I would preach through uh, an entire series uh, through the book uh, or the, the, the chapter Psalm 23. We'd spend like six or seven weeks in it, so I bought a bunch of books in preparation for this. I've got all this information running in my head today. Um, no way I'll be able to get to all of it. If you want to dive more into what has become probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, a few books uh, that I'd recommend to you that I personally enjoyed, uh, A Life Without Lack by Dallas Willard is one. Uh, the second one is A Shepherd's Life by Philip Keller. And then uh, the last one is, and the one that's probably inspired this message the most, is Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table uh, by Louis Giglio. And so, um, again, would encourage you to grab one of those, read it if you want to dive more into this text. With that, let me invite you to stand with me as we read Psalm 23. Uh, we believe this is one of the most important moments in our service where we actually read uh, this scripture, which we believe is God's word to us. And I'm going to go a little bit slower today because every one of these words really is packed with so much truth and so much goodness. And so just allow this to be read over you. Psalm 23 verse 1 says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of God forever. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I do thank you so much for giving us this text. And I just pray very simply that um, rather than just knowing this text with our minds, that we'll be able to experience it with our whole lives. That we won't just know Psalm 23, but we will know the shepherd 
in Psalm 23 in a real and intimate and personal way that changes us from the inside out. It's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these sayings. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 23 is one of the most popular passages in all the Bible. If we were to do a top five list of most popular, most familiar texts, John 3.16 would be on there. Uh, The Lord's Prayer would probably be on there. Maybe Philippians 4.13. But at the top, or at least close to the top in that list, would be Psalm 23. We have heard it read at funerals many times. Um, we have seen it referenced in movies like Saving Private Ryan and heard it rapped about in songs like Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. Um, we've seen it hanging on grandma's wall or in a church hallway. And therefore, because that is true, because this psalm is so familiar, one of my fears as I begin to teach this is that there are those in this room who think they know Psalm 23, but you don't really know Psalm 23. We hear this psalm being read, and our mind immediately goes to this Olin Mills photograph of Jesus. Um, maybe you've seen this before. Wouldn't you have liked to have been at this photo shoot, right? I mean, here's Jesus. His beard is triumphant. has a nice beard balm or beard oil in there. He's got the wavy hair, nice tan, and his chin is kind of lifted, and he's looking off to the left, to the distance, almost as if he's completely removed from the reality of our lives. And this photo works when you're a kid. Like it works when you're in seventh grade and you're in Sunday school class. You're like, yeah, that's my guy. Like that's my shepherd. But then as you get older and the reality of life smacks you in the face, like when all of a sudden you experience hardship and loss and death and failed expectations, you look at that and you're like, yeah, I'm not so sure that that guy in the photograph is really my guy. Because when life gets hard, when life gets messy, when you find yourself in this dark and scary place, you need someone who seems a little bit more present than that. You need someone more tangible, more gritty, more powerful. And you see, that's what Psalm 23 is all about. Psalm 23 is written by a shepherd by the name of David who is intimately aware of the relationship between a shepherd and sheep. And so when he starts the psalm, he says, what is God like? God is like a shepherd. And when he says that that the Lord is my shepherd, what he is implying here is that we are actually his sheep. And that sounds really nice. That sounds like a compliment. And that's because oftentimes when we think about a shepherd and a sheep, we think about this painting right here where... You know, you've got American Jesus, right? He's glowing, probably has a little bit of a perm going on, right? He's, he's clearly like bulked up, like he's, he's muscled up and he's on this leisurely stroll through this green pasture and we're like, oh, that's me in Jesus's arms, right? You got that little lamb just like literally like looking up, making eye contact with Jesus and smiling at him. And we're like, man, that is so cute. And sheep are cute, right? Oh, they really are cute. And they're really yummy too, but that's, you know, they're, they're cute. But that's really all they have going for them. If you study sheep, what you discover is that they're actually incredibly fragile. Uh, they're vulnerable. They're helpless. They're easy prey for wolves and lions and bears. They're susceptible to all kinds of diseases. They literally let gnats crawl into their noses and lay eggs. Um, they're not smart. 
They, they wander off. They get lost. They make stupid decisions even when they're trying to make the right decision. So when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, what is he actually saying? <laughs> That's awesome. Someone in the front says, I'm an idiot. Uh, Pretty much it's what he's saying. He's saying something that most of us aren't willing to admit. And it's the fact that I need help. That I can be an idiot. Like I need a shepherd. I need someone to lead me, to feed me, to protect me, to provide for me. And what David says in Psalm 23 is that's who God is. God is my shepherd. I love that possessive. He doesn't just say, like, he's, he's our shepherd. David says, no, he's my shepherd. That's a word. I, mean, I, I would never say, like, you know, like, Adam is my Adam. That'd be weird. But I do say, like, Megan is my wife, right? Because there's intimacy there. There's, there's depth there. He's saying, like, that's the way I know God. He is my shepherd. And because he is the one who owns it all. Because he controls the cosmos. Because he has everything that I could ever need. And he is incredibly generous. And he never runs out. He says, because of that fact, I lack nothing. Can you imagine saying that? And actually meaning it? I lack nothing. There's nothing I can think of that I need. In the New Testament version of Psalm 23, Paul in Philippians 4.11 says, I have learned how to be content in all situations. Can you say that today? No matter my job, no matter my health, no matter my marriage, no matter, I have learned to be content in all situations. How is this possible? Paul says in Philippians 4.13, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Some of you are like, wait a minute. Like, I thought that verse was about scoring touchdowns or, like, hitting home runs. Like, nope. Like, the context of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is all about contentment. It is about living the life that Dallas Willard referred to as a life without lack. A life where we realize that because Jesus is my shepherd, then no matter what happens, I am safe and I am secure and I am supplied with every single thing I need in this moment. Guys, I understand that this seems like preacher talk. Like this seems like a pipe dream. Totally get it. But it really is what Jesus is calling you and me to step into today. He's calling you into a life without lack. Habakkuk chapter 3 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, When Megan and I got married, I had a, a lady paint. Uh, basically, uh, this scene it's, 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 that's inspired by Habakkuk chapter 3. It hangs in our dining room, and it's kind of a prayer over our house. And in Habakkuk 3, he, he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, though there's no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fail, and there's no food in the field, though there's no sheep in the pen or cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in God. For the sovereign Lord, he says, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer so I can tread on high places. Translation, it don't matter what happens around me. Because I have God, I'm good. Yeah. I mean, don't you want to know God in that way? Like I do. And this is the invitation this morning. It is a life where we learn to be content no matter the situation. But the first thing we have to see, David says, is you have to see that, that, that you're a sheep. You have to be willing to admit that, that you're weak and you're vulnerable. You have to be willing to be led by someone other than yourself. You have to admit, I need a shepherd. And maybe for some of you this morning, this is what's tripping you up. 
is you're like, man, this is beneath me. I am not a sheep. That is not me. Like, I am strong. Right? Use as strong. Right? Like, like, I am strong. I am competent. I am educated. I am successful. I am smart. My marriage is amazing. My kids are amazing. My body is amazing. Like, I'm amazing. Like, there are some of people that actually say that. Not the, probably the minority. But I'm amazing. And what you need to know today is, listen, until you are willing to recognize that you are a sheep in need of a shepherd, you will never experience what David is talking about in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 may be preached at your funeral, but it'll never be experienced in your life. David starts and he says, I am like a sheep. I am weak. I'm fragile. I'm vulnerable. I'm really not that smart. I can be an idiot. That's the bad news, but here's the good news is the Lord is my shepherd. And because the Lord is my shepherd, no matter what's going on around me, I have everything that I need. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Is that not just wonderful? I mean, think about this imagery. David says, because I'm a sheep, I don't even know how to find rest. Like, is anybody, does that connect with anybody else? Like, like, I think I know how to get rest, but then I'm constantly exhausted. Like, even if I can physically rest, my mind is going crazy. I have a hard time staying asleep. I'm just caught up with all of this anxiety. And he says, because God is a good shepherd and he knows you don't know where to find rest, he will make you lie down in green pastures. He will give you a Sabbath. He will give you a real rest, not just a physical rest, but a spiritual rest. He says, he will also lead me beside quiet waters. Why does that matter? Because sheep, being dumb, when they try to quench their thirst, will often run to dirty water, which can only make them sick. You ever run to anything to quench your thirst that will hurt you? That's what sheep do. Sheep will even run into to water that is just like rushing past them. They don't understand, like, oh, I've got this massive like wool coat on, and when I get in this rushing water, it's going to weight me down and carry me down the stream in a disaster. Because Jesus is a good shepherd. He says, no, no, I'm not going to lead you there. I'm going to lead you beside quiet waters, clear waters where you can have your thirst quenched. He says he restores my soul. You know, whenever we choose to live a life that's separate from God, when we try to be our own shepherd or we trust in another shepherd, more than we trust in Jesus, literally our soul begins to disintegrate. We begin to fall apart. But when we return to the shepherd, he restores our soul. He makes us whole. He says, he guides me down the right path. The prophet Isaiah says, all of us are like sheep. We all turn our own ways. But the good news is, when we trust Jesus, even if it's confusing and dark and all that, he will lead you down the narrow path that ultimately leads to life. And then in one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, he says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, your translation might say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. In one of the best sermons I've ever heard preached from this stage, Jeff Schulte preached this verse, and he talked about the reality that at one time or another, we all have to go through dark valleys. We all, unfortunately, have to experience death and hardship. And as much as we want to avoid this valley, as much as we want to go over it, or we want to go under it, or we want to go around it, the truth is, guys, the only way you get to the top of a mountain is by going through the valley. To this place that is dark and difficult and dangerous. And as scary as this might seem, David says, I have learned actually to go through the darkest valley you can ever imagine and do it without fear. 
How is that possible? Because I know that my shepherd is with me. And not just is he with me, he's carrying a rod and his staff, which means he's able to protect me from myself, which, by the way, we all need, and he can protect me from my enemies. And just to drive this point home, look at what David says next. And this is where I want to focus primarily this morning. Again, in verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then look at this, verse 5. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That is not how I would have written this psalm. I would have said, you prepare a table before me in your presence. Forget the enemies. Like, blow my enemies up. Like, get rid of them. Like, I don't want to be in the presence of my enemies. Like, so, so eject me out of this moment. Eject me out of this circumstance. Eject me out of this situation, out of this grief, out of this pressure, out of this cancer, out of this stupid pandemic. Like, I just want to be in your presence, period. But that's not what we read right here. God says the truth is sin fractured this world, and so you're going to still be in this fallen world for a while. And the bad news is, though I will not bail you out, here's the good news, I will parachute in. And I will come and I will stand with you right in the middle of your pain, right in the middle of your suffering, right in the middle of your loss. And not only that, I will prepare, he says, a table before you in the presence of your enemies, in the presence of the hurricane, in the presence of the terrorists, in the presence of the pandemics, in the presence of the political and the racial divides and all of that kind of stuff. He says, and I will anoint your head with oil, your cup will overflow, and no matter what happens, you can bank on this truth. Surely goodness and love will follow you all the days of your life and your future. Where are you going? You're going to dwell in the house of God forever. We've got to get a picture of this. And so what I decided to do is Go back to my college ministry days. In college ministry, the only way you can keep college students' attention is, is you have to have an object lesson. You always have to use some sort of a prop. And so I thought, hey, I want to do this um, right here. And by the way, this beautiful layout is courtesy of Heather Watson. So can we just give Heather Watson a round of applause? This is literally what their dinner looks like every night at their house. So let that shame you. Um, that's not true, is it, Heather? No. Okay. Well, that does look really good. All right, so for the purpose of the illustration, you guys are all my enemies, okay? Like, it's an illustration. I love each of you, uh, some more than others, but I do love each of you, um, and hopefully you love me, right? And so, but for this purpose, you're my enemies. Your trouble I didn't ask for, your problems I don't want. You're a situation I don't want to be in. Your criticism, your pressure, your bad news, your criticism, you're all of that. But in the presence of my enemies, there's a table that has been prepared for me. And I'm invited to have a seat at it. And I want you to just think about this. This is the, this is the image in Psalm 23. You're surrounded by enemies. All of this bad stuff is going on around you. But here's a table loaded with food, loaded with drink. And God is there with you. And he says, hey, I know all that stuff's going on out there, but man, let's just feast. Because God's not anxious. Like, you're in the middle of a war, but he's calm. And he says, man, let's just, let's eat, let's drink. And by the way, I want you to know that the bill is paid in full. I've covered the entire cost. And guys, look, as you think about this image, eating a meal with God, this is the Christian life. 
If you want to know what is, the, what is a snapshot of what the Christian life is, this is it. Being with God. A relationship with God. Communion with God. Fellowship around the table with the creator of the universe. And it's what we are invited into. And you see, because the devil knows that this is true, because the devil, look, please hear me, because the devil knows that this right here is the source of our joy, because he knows this is the source of your life, this is the source of peace, this is the source of of your strength, let me show you what he is going to try to do. Let me show you this. What he will try to do is pull up a table or pull up a chair right here at the table. And he's going to begin to try to get into your ear for the purpose, Jesus says in John 10.10, to kill, to steal, and destroy. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, he says this, that he says, we need to be alert and be sober-minded for your enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So while you're here trying to devour the food, you have an enemy who wants to devour you. And the way that he wants to do this, listen, the way, please hear me today, the main way that the enemy wants to take you down and rob you of your joy and your peace in your life is through feeding you lies. That is his primary strategy against you, to get you to doubt the truths about who God is and who you are. And if you're like, I don't know about this, you're like, this isn't in the psalm. Like, where are you getting this at? Like, the devil would never pull up a chair at a table where there's food and it's just God and other people. Have you read Genesis chapter 3? Because that's exactly what he did. You have God and you have Adam and Eve and you have food. And he just pulls up a chair and he begins to get in their ear. And here's how he begins to do this. Like, he's so clever. He's not going to sit at your table and say, you see this orange? I'm about to choke you to death with this sucker. He's way smarter than that. Here's what he does instead. How are you? Because that's all we want is for someone just to ask us, how are you? How are you? Hey, are you, um, are you still with that same lady? Is she still nagging you? Really? She's still uh, burning dinner sometimes, not getting the laundry done like she's supposed to. She, uh, she's showing you the same respect that lady does at work. Wow, y'all are still together, really. I don't know any other man who'd stay with that woman. She's crazy. <laughs> you know her mom hates you, don't you? They talk about it all the time, dude. They're against you, man. Like, she don't care about you. Matter of fact, she's probably, I don't know, she might be cheating on you. Or I'll tell you what he did with me over sabbatical. We had some neighbors that moved, that uh, moved into the house next door to us around the same time we did. That's kind of what he began to do with me. They moved out, got a bigger house. Wow. Did your neighbors just get that big house across town? It's a lot bigger than yours, isn't it? Boy, I bet their kids are so proud to be living in that house. I bet they're so proud of their dad. Forget them that. Didn't they get a new truck? It actually, don't you have three or four friends that got a new truck? 
Huh. You think you're uh, falling behind? You think maybe uh, you should pick up the pace? You should find a way to become a little bit more successful to keep up with everybody else? Hey, and, and by the way, you tithe to your church. Couldn't you probably get a new truck with that amount of money? You see how it works? So dang clever. And in the process, the more you sit there and you just listen to him, let me tell you what happens. You become more bitter. You become more anxious. You become more depressed. You begin to build up stories about other people that aren't even true. You begin to build up stories about God that is not true. What is he doing? Slowly but surely, he is robbing you. He's killing, he's stealing, and he's destroying Guys, that's what he's doing. It's what he did in the garden, and it's what he's doing with you. So the question is like, well, how do I know if I've given the enemy a seat at the table? And I would say there's at least one of five lies that he's going to be trying to convince you of. And these are five lies I shared with the elders, and they all agree, like, yeah, this is, there may be many more, but this might be the top five. And so if you're taking notes, I'll put it on the screen for you. Lie number one that the enemy will try to feed you for the purpose of destroying you is this. You are not good enough for this table. You're not spiritual enough. You're not holy enough. You don't belong here. You have sinned too much. You had your chance and you failed. Get up and give someone else a seat at the table. If you're hearing that, there's a chance that the enemy's in your ear. Another lie is this you don't have time for this table. You don't have time to just sit here and commune with God. I mean, there's so much more stuff to be doing out there. Uh, and so here's, here's the way this typically works. Like, he just says, hey, you know what? Like, this right here is not the point of the Christian life. Fellowship with God, that doesn't matter. Just get a little bit of God and then go about your day by yourself. And so, right, just here. Just get your to-go plate. Just real fast. Just load it up in here. A little piece of bread. There, I'll do gluten-free bread because that's how I row. Get you a cucumber. I don't know. A green tomato, why not? Okay? And just take it to go. And of course, what do we do? Before we do that, we're like, okay, I'm going to get it to go, but first, hang on a second, this is beautiful. <laughs> Portrait mode, here I come. Bam, Instagram, time with Jesus this morning, hashtag blessed. If that's happening, if you're rushing through this, to get to whatever else it is that seems so much more important, there's a chance the enemy's right there telling you something's better. Which leads to my third lie, and that is that life is actually better at another table. You don't have everything you need here. Are you kidding me? Look at your bank account. Look at your job. Look at your boss. Look at your marriage. Look at your clothes. Look at your, what you're driving. Like, look at You obviously lack a lot, and you better get up and you better go somewhere else to get what you actually need to be fulfilled, even if you have to be disobedient to do it. If you believe that, there's a chance the enemy is at your table. Fourth lie is this, and this is a big one. You're all alone at this table. There's nobody there. Nobody cares about you. Your pastors don't care about you. Your spouse don't care about you. Your kids don't care about you. Your friends don't care about you. Your boss don't care about you. There's nobody. You're all alone. And God certainly isn't there. 
which leads to, I think, the fifth and final lie that he wants to try to feed us, and it's this. You'll never make it if you keep sitting at this table. Look at how dark it's getting out there. Look at all those enemies. God, they're big. Your best days are behind you. You're trapped. There's no way out. It's hopeless. It's over. If you're beginning to believe that, there's a chance that the enemy has a seat at your table. Guys, this is how the devil works. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal from you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to rob you of joy, rob you of peace, rob you of strength, rob you of your life. And the primary way that he'll do this, listen guys, the primary way the devil wants to get at you, you've got to hear this, it's not through demonization, right? We think about the exorcist, like, ooh, that's what it's like when the devil really gets a hold of you. Your, spin, your heads are spinning out of control and you vomit everywhere, right? It's like, no. How do we know whenever the devil's coming at us? It's not primarily, the way that he wants to take us down is not through demonization, it's not through disaster, it's not through disease, but primarily it's through deception. It's through planting these little bitty lies that you begin to believe that eventually lead you down a path of destruction. David Tackle says this way better than I ever could. And I'll just read this to you. He says the following. He, the devil, cannot violate our will or make us sin. But he can offer us distorted perceptions as if they were the foundations for life or twist the truth until we no longer know which end is up. I don't even know which I don't, I'm so confused. We greatly trivialize the work of the enemy when we say that his primary activity is to tempt us to do bad things. This is only a small part of his strategy. If he can, listen to this, if he can keep us from hearing the truth, that's scary. If he can keep you or me, even in these moments, if he can keep us from hearing the truth, or keep us from, even more, eternalizing the truth once we hear it, If he can fill our heart with all sorts of uh, distortions about spiritual realities, then we will go off and self-destruct on our own without any need for constant harassment or temptation. This is the stuff of which the kingdom of darkness is built. But listen to this. Once we grasp this reality, we have within our reach a phenomenal weapon because light has all the power. Whether light enters or wherever light enters, darkness is obliterated. There is no contest, no struggle. Light wins, hands down. And then here's the last line. I love this. The kingdom of darkness is built on a sham, and one thing it cannot tolerate is exposure to the truth. To that end, if we are going to live a life of lack, if we truly are going to be a people who experience contentment, no matter what is happening with our marriage or our kids or our job, If Psalm 23 is going to go from just being a funeral message to actually being something you experience in your life, we're going to have to learn to identify the lies that we're believing in our head and begin to replace it with the truth of God's word. And I honestly believe, and what I have found, or I am finding, is that I believe Psalm 23 has an answer to every one of the lies the enemy wants to feed you. And so what I want to encourage you to do this week is two things. First thing is this, or I guess three things. First thing is this. Memorize Psalm 23. Scripture memorization, guys, please hear me, is paramount in your fight against the devil. Dallas Willard says it like this. Scripture memorization 
is an essential element of a life without lack. It enables us to keep God and his truth constantly before our minds, allowing his word and his wisdom to shape our thoughts and therefore our entire lives. This week, I really want to encourage you, memorize Psalm 23. Secondly, I want to encourage you to identify lies that you've been tempted to believe. Maybe it's one of the five lies that I just shared. Maybe it's something different. But identify those lies and then begin to look for ways to replace the truth with the lie. And I would encourage you to, if you, if you don't journal, that's fine, but maybe find a sheet of paper and write out any time that you discover that you're believing a lie and then replace it with the truth. And so real practically, the way I would do this if I were you is maybe for some of you, you realize just today you're believing the lie that you're all alone. Everybody is against you. God has abandoned you. And you might just write that down but then put, wait a minute, time out. The truth is, even when I walk through the darkest valley, God is with me. That's the truth. Even when life seems unbearable and everything has fallen apart and it seems like God has left me, the truth is, no, he says I will go through dark times, I will go through hard times, and he's there with me in it. That's the truth. Or maybe you begin to believe the lie that my best days are behind me. It's all over. It's hopeless. No, the truth is goodness and love is going to follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of God forever. That's the truth. Or maybe it's, a, it's the lie that I am without. There's something I'm missing. I don't know what it is. I don't know where I need to be, but it's not where I am. There's something I'm missing. I need more. No, the truth is because God is my shepherd, I lack nothing. That's something I really want to encourage you to do this week as a practice. We always say as a church, one of the things that um, is very important to us here at the cross scene is we don't want to be hearers of the word, we want to be doers. I don't want to give you a raw, raw, raw message. And then like you go on out like, apply this. And here's one of the greatest ways to apply it. And just for the record, like the purpose of this exercise is not to minimize your pain. Please hear me say that. Like your pain is real. Like the struggle is real. The purpose of this exercise is not to, for, to pretend like that's not there. The purpose is not to minimize the fact that pain is real, but it's to maximize the fact that God is with you there in your pain. He's there. It's to help you go from believing these lies to embracing the truth. And to help us do that today, to feast on this truth. We're going to do what we do every single week. And this is not like just a check a box and let's get out of here. We believe this is so incredibly important. We come to the Lord's table every single week. Now it looks different because of COVID and we got these little things, but that's what this is. The early church, it would have been a literal table. It would have been like this. This is what communion would have looked like. That's why, by the way, and, and Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, and he's like, hey, stop getting drunk on the communion line. Like, why are they getting drunk on it? It's not because they have a low tolerance of alcohol and like one little sip's knocking them out. It's because it was a feast. It was around a literal table. Now, we don't get to, to do that right now. Hopefully, one day, we'll figure out a way to get to that. But we do have this cup, and we do have this juice. The, the, uh, we, we do have the bread. The bread there on top represents the perfect life of Christ. The, the juice represents his blood shed for us. And this week, listen, as you take this, and we're almost done, here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember that as you take this, if you have trusted in Jesus, he is your good shepherd. He is everything you could ever need. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And the reason that you can sit at this table with confidence in the presence of your enemies is because Jesus, he went into the biggest battle we could ever face and he took on the largest, scariest enemies we could ever have, which is the enemy of death that most of us are terrified by. 
and the enemy of sin and the devil. And he didn't just endure death on a cross. He conquered it because three days later he rose from the dead. You know what that means? When we sit at the table with God, he's not just our shepherd. He is a warrior king. And he reigns victoriously. He ain't freaking out by anything that's happened in our world right now. Grieving it, but he ain't freaking out because he knows how this ends. And the day as you take the juice and you take the bread, take it in victory. And remember that this right here is just a reminder that the enemies that seem so big and scary, they're under the foot of Jesus. And if they're under the foot of Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 1, because we are the body of Christ, guess where our enemies are? They're under our feet. So we are more than conquerors through Christ. Remember that today as you partake of communion.